0: Bless us now as we study your word. May your spirit guide us as we discuss your wrath. May we have a clear understanding and better appreciation the mediation you have gone through. Uh, working through your word, Jesus
1: Amen.
0: Amen. Okay, uh, we stopped last time on page 3. This is the page three of God's wrath in the Bible. And what I have here is a list of instructive passages. Passages we can learn, of, learn from to us with other passages that are more difficult. And um, as you can see, it lasts a couple of years. And I, I just, I, what I do is like I divide I did a study, a complete study, of all the words for a wrap for a while. It looked at me a long, long time. Like, I never thought of using it for this class. I used it for my own personal study to write about. But uh, it's, it's proved to be a very helpful thing to refer to as a political program. So this is what you have here is taking that study and kind of separating it into parts uh, to give us continuity. So the first passage uh, is Exodus 22:22, 22, 22, and then I have forward slash 23 to 23 and 24. I actually don't remember what that is about. but We will point out. If you turn to Exodus 22, verse 22, I think it, meant, it should have been 32, verse 32. Aaron replied. Don't get angry with me, sir. You know yourself these people are um, And you see, Moses has just come off down the mountain. He finds that they're dancing around the golden calf. And he says, notice what he says in verse 21. What did these people do to you that you let them commit such a terrible sin? <laughs> uh, he, he's really trying not to blame Aaron. So he's, he's really, he's, he's upset. Aaron's afraid he's going to get angry. Now we um, go go to verse thirty. Uh, this really should be 22, 32, verse thirty-two, and thirty-three. Uh, and I'm not sure what that rest of that is, um, but. I know this passage well, I'm working on my way through it. So, uh, what we'll do is do that. Verse 30, the next day, Moses said to the people, You've committed a terrible sin now. I will go up to the Lord. Maybe I can arrange a reconciliation on account of your sin. Uh, you notice that when something goes wrong, we sin. The perception is that the problem lies with God. Right? The problem isn't that we've sinned. The sin itself is not the problem. The problem is with God. And that's that's truly our human experience. When we sin, don't don't we immediately think about where we call out with God. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's kind of the natural human uh, way of, of looking at it. So Moses went back to the Lord, verse thirty one, and said, Oh what a terrible sin these people have committed. They made themselves of gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. And if not, wipe me out of the scroll you've And and the Lord said to Moses, I will, the ones I wipe out of the scroll are the ones who've sinned against me. Uh, Now go, lead the people to the place I described to you. You can't can't substitute for them Moses. But let's let's go up to earlier, uh, to verse 11. This is before he comes down off the mountain. And the Lord said to Moses, I'll actually go to verse 7. And why don't we start reading around the circle.
2: Adam, why yeah. don't you begin? Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go at once to your people, for whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way at which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed it, to, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt.
0: Notice that they have corrupted themselves. That's, that's what idolatry does. It, it, de- it destroys something of the reasoning powers. You, you didn't read verse 9, right? No. Okay, why don't you go ahead and read verses 9. And nine.
1: The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are, now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. Okay, now here's, a,
0: here's an interesting question. Why did Moses have to let God alone so that God could get angry? My anger can't burn because you're not leaving me alone. Now leave me alone so my anger can burn. How many of you have ever met someone who is angry? Yes. I think we've all had an experience with someone angry would, if, would leaving them—I mean, would, would standing in their presence and not leaving them alone make them stop getting angry? No. They might get angrier, right? <laughs> so this seems odd. Here, let me alone that I can get angry, or let me alone that my anger may burn against them. I can't burn my my, my anger can't burn against them with you standing here, Moses. I mean, could the most powerful person in the universe? i mean would he need that it it seems odd Mm, i'm going to come back to that now uh brian why don't you go ahead and read
3: but moses sought the favor of the lord his god lord he said why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of egypt with great power and a mighty hand why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent, and do not bring disaster on your people.
0: Okay, go ahead and read 13, 14. Uh, John.
3: Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened.
0: So Moses doesn't leave God alone, does he? He starts pleading with God, uh, turn from your fierce anger, relent or change your mind, is actually what the Hebrew says, turn around. Uh, It's it's the same word for repentance. Repentance. Uh, we, when we, when translators use it or find it used of God, they usually translate relent instead of repent. Keeping in mind, the Bible is using very human language here. This is very a, a fairly anthropomorphic picture of God. Yeah. But he doesn't he doesn't step aside. He doesn't stop trying to change God's mind. Why would Moses do that? Given that God told him, shouldn't a person just obey God when He tells you to do something? Shouldn't uh, people just obey God? I mean, shouldn't Moses? Moses is in God's service. He's his leader. Shouldn't he just obey God when God says, leave me alone, that I may destroy them? Um,
2: I, I'm just remembering the verse where they're questioning Moses' authority and God says that he speaks to Moses face to face. It's like they're friends almost. So this, it almost seems like God's letting Moses take, the, make the ethical decision. Maybe it's a test.
0: You know, that's the, uh, that's what uh, Pedro's prophet suggests is that God was actually testing Moses' love for His people. You know, would, would he selfishly say, "Sure, God, make me a, a great nation"? Uh, and I like that. I think there's uh, a little bit more than that going on. I think that is part of it. Um, but my sense of things is that this is this is a direct you might say, a, a direct counterpart or uh, almost a polemic against uh, ancient Near Eastern, particularly Mesopotamian views of God, where human beings were created to be God's slaves. And a slave never questions his master. A slave always agrees with the master. Um, there's a w- actual work dedicated to that aspect that actually tries to tweak it and, and question it a little bit. But it's not about divinity in that. It's about a master and his slave having a dialogue. And so what I, I'm, I would like to suggest about this, is that this story is a parody of an angry God motif in ancient news. You know what a parody is. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. It's a parody of an angry God motif. The, the expected thing is God blows his lid because they worship other gods. Uh, he's he's going. He and it, and it says later on he does send a plague, um, but and probably that plague was the, simply the consequences of a lot of promiscuity in the camp. Um, it has some STDs. And, a few other problems but what I really think is that you have this scene of God getting angry telling Moses step aside I'm going to disown these people make you a great nation and there's something about it that just doesn't make any sense the way it's worded it's sort of like Jesus in the parable the rich man Lazarus you know take a drop of Of water with your finger and and come to the flames and touch my burning tongue. How how long is a drop of water going to last? Is it really going to do any good if your tongue is on fire? Uh, (laughs) You know, it's a parody that Jesus makes. Jesus actually creates a parody there of hell, of Hades. And this is a parody, the way the language is used, of an angry God. And what it does is suggest God is not angry like the ancient Near Eastern people saw their gods. Let's let's move on in the story. Uh, Moses comes down, he's he Moses gets angry, he breaks the Ten Commandments, uh, and then uh, go to thirty three. Chapter thirty three. Uh, well it's in this context that your verse is found. Let's start with verse seven of chapter thirty three. And um uh, how far?
1: I a couple of verses. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand, each of them, at the entrance of their tents, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and bow down, all of them at the entrance of the tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then he would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua son of Nun, would not leave the tent."
0: So there's your text. It is in this context that Moses speaks to God as to a friend. Uh, So Moses goes back and he starts pleading with God. And I'll read it for a little bit. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you've been telling me lead these people forward, but you haven't told me who you will send with me. Yet you assured me, I know you by name and think highly of you. Now, if you do think highly of me, show me your ways. that I may know you so that you may really approve of me. Remember too that this nation is your people. Moses is a little, he didn't get the parody. He's a little unnerved by God's outburst earlier. Uh, And so the Lord replied, I'll go myself and I'll help you. Moses doesn't know is isn't certain that's that's really what he means. So he says, If you won't go yourself, don't make us leave you. Because how will anyone know that we have your special approval, both I and your people, unless you go with us? Only that distinguishes us, me and your people, from every other people. As Moses knows God right now, it's God being with his people that sets Israel apart every other person group. Now is that because Yahweh is Israel's God and he isn't the God of all the other nations? Or is it that Yahweh is unique among other gods because he is his so people? And, and that that raises enormous questions because every every ancient Near Eastern person thought their God was in their temple as, as long as they drew them down and did all kinds of things to make them come to them, that's that's the hallmark of ancient Eastern religions. You have to do something to get the gods on yourself. You have to pull them to you. Be listening, about it from the sermon. Uh, there's a great statement the pastor that about prayer. is like when uh, you, you throw a chain out to link the bank to pull a boat. You pull the bank towards you, you pull vote? You the boat. Prayer does not pull God toward us; it pulls us toward Him. Uh, it's, it's a great quote. Be listening for it. Uh, and, and see, I think that that you can use that as a summary point for for the different one of the main differences between God and the gods of other peoples. In Mesopotamia, everything was about trying to get the gods to love them, trying to get the gods on their side, trying to get the gods' favor, trying to appease the gods. Um, everything is trying to draw the gods to himself. Interval God is trying to draw the people yeah. To yeah. himself and all the attributes. That's a hallmark difference between uh, Yahweh and gods of the um, So I think that's what Moses is referring to. Uh, so in verse 17, Yahweh says to Moses, I'll do exactly as you asked. Because you have my special approval, and
4: I know you by name. What is next? Verse 18. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, oh, the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see my face and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but not my face.
0: Okay, um... This is one of the most profound passages in the Old Testament. And what's amazing to me is in almost every study of the Old Testament, gets ignored. But what Moses wants to know is who are you really like? What are you really like? Uh, it's not enough for me to have your presence. I need to know you. I need to know who you really are. And, and so he says, please show me your glory. Uh, that term glory probably refers to the, what some scholars call the numinous that ancient Eastern peoples understood was around deity. And, and particularly in the earlier periods uh, of Sumerian culture, uh, this numinous uh, was was just like a, a an awesome glorious presence that was so bright and, and so penetrating that no one could stand to look at it. So Moses asked to see God's glory. That's that's something no ancient Near Eastern person really wanted to see. They were scared of it. They were scared of the deity in the glory. And what is interesting is, once Moses says, "Please show me your glory," Yahweh says, "I will make all my goodness pass." Uh, New English Bible translates this character. Make all my character pass before you, and that's because the word goodness can mean the totality of, of a person. So yeah. it would refer, and, and it, but it has moral overtones. It's, it's not a uh, it's not a word that just encompasses, like say, physical being or or something like that. It it has a moral connotation. So character really is the best interpretation of what he means when he says, "I will make all my goodness." and it's reinforced by, and I'll proclaim before you the name Yahweh." What does Yahweh mean? By the way, you have the Lord here. Remember, I think I taught you all that um, this is a substitute by devout Jews because they were afraid of taking God's name in vain. And so they substituted it with Adonai, which means Lord. To me that is taking his name somewhat in vain uh, Because Yahweh does not mean Lord Yahweh is a form of the verb to be It really is he is And you remember in Exodus 3 uh, Moses asked for God's name And he says I am who I am God's name really is I am who I am Yahweh is a slight change of that It's from I am to he is So, um, when he says, I will proclaim before you the name Yahweh, name in the Bible denotes character. Hmm. What is Yahweh? He is. I I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am what I
4: am. Maybe it could refer to the property of God as um, supreme creator.
0: Okay, the creator. Creator. Uh, the one who is, the one who makes things to be.
4: Right.
3: Jonathan? When he calls himself that, do you think that's like a sort of to draw attention to to what he is, the, the care his character, I guess. Does he really identify I think so? I think
0: so I think so. I am who I am, um, and and there's a, a kind of changelessness about that. I. I, I will behave the way I will behave. And he seems to draw that out because, you notice what he says next, I will be kind to whomever I wish to be kind. or I will show mercy to whomever I will show mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will come to mm-hmm. And he doesn't say, and I will render justice to whoever I want to render justice. That part is not there. And I will be angry with whomever I will be angry. That's not there. He, he stops with kindness
2: and compassion. Like you said, the Lord Yahweh is, He is. Like verse 6 of 34 is like, He is, He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I think that's awesome. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, why don't we go to that next. Let's see. Adam, why don't you read verses 5 to 7.
2: The Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth
0: generations. Your translation uh, muddies the water a little bit. So does mine. Uh, let's work on the last line and then we'll come back to it as a whole. Uh, yet by no means clearing the guilty. That is, I'm not going to say to the guilty, oh, no problem. You murdered your brother. It's no issue. I, you know, he's not valuable to me. So go ahead and murder him. Uh, there's none of that there. And visiting the iniquity of the fathers, my version has punishing, because that's how that has come to be uh, interpreted by scholars. But it's really a word that directly does not mean to punish. It has, it, In certain contexts, it seems to mean that. But what it really means is administering the iniquity of a person that is letting the iniquity do the punishing the way it's, it's constructed and, the, and if you look at that word it's a word that can mean a lot of different things but it really has to do with overseeing with um, summoning with with administering um, and and possibly allowing and in this context uh, administering or, or letting the iniquity of the fathers uh, come down and, you might say, punish in the sense of consequences uh, are the children to the third and fourth generation can mean that God is actually limiting the consequences of sin to the third and fourth generation. Now if you study epigenetics, I can't resist bringing this up again. <laughs> Adam's already heard my spiel on epigenetics. But if you study epigenetics, uh, the, what my grandparents did affects my genes. My DNA is affected by what my grandfather, my grandparents did. We are, we are genetically more like our grandparents than our parents. And, and I got that from a very authorized source named Brian Ness. Uh, he has said that more than once to me. Um, so what my grandparents did, if, if my grandfather decided to drink himself into oblivion, I am more likely to want to drink myself into oblivion uh, because of that. And, and so you have these, these things that work from generation to generation. And there's an actual study done of uh, child molestation, that shows that it is usually at the third or fourth generation that a decision is made not to perpetuate the crime of molestation. In a family where you have a father molesting his son, son molests his son, it's the third fourth generation who say, I'm not going to do that to my son. And... uh, I think if more studies were done, we would see that this is kind of the way it is, that God has actually put a default in. Now, quickly go to uh, Exodus 20. And uh, if you look at, uh, why don't you read, uh, Bianca, verses 4
1: to 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and to the fourth generation of those who reject me, but show steadfast love to the ten- to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments.
0: Okay, This is a similar
1: passage. Uh,
0: idolatry is changing the picture of God. And it's worshiping a false picture of God. Okay? So what God is saying here is, I will visit visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But keeping mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What this what this adds to the other statement is that not only does God set a default in the third and fourth generation there's going to be the change in the consequences and people are going to try to redeem the past but anyone at any generation who responds to his love can make that same decision so going back to 34 of Exodus you look at this list This list does not include divine anger, does it? So, if it doesn't include God directly punishing people, but rather the consequences that he allows to take place, then this is a God whose glory and his name represent complete love. This is a God who is 100% love. Uh, now, going back, I want to point out something else. Going back to the previous chapter, Exodus 33. We skipped over this. Well, we, we didn't talk about it. Uh, verse 20. Verse 20. God says, you can't see my face because no one can see me and live. Uh, there are several ways to translate this from the Hebrew. You could say, no one shall see me and live and imply that God is going to whack them if they get caught looking at his face. Or you can translate it. You can't. It's impossible for you to see me and live. You will die if you see my face. Which do you think is the way best depicted by the context? I think the second one too, because uh, otherwise this this idea that I will make all my goodness pass before you, why would goodness, why would mercy, uh, be just be be ready to whack? <laughs> um, so I would like to oppose you. This is and, and this those of you who've taken books of Moses, this is review, um, but I for the sake of people listening, I need to say it again. In the ancient Near East. To look at a person's face was to see their grace, their mercy, their favor. It was to be in favor with that person. It was to be in harmony with that person. And I, ha- I have various examples. The Sabbath that I dealt with divine anger in the choir room Sabbath school while you were gone, unfortunately. Uh, it's online. when there's a, a PowerPoint where I, have, I list some examples from the ancient Near East uh, where this is true. I'll give you one biblical example. Uh, David tells Absalom he cannot see his face because Absalom has killed his brother Ammon, and therefore he's in disgrace with David. So not letting him see his face is being not in favor of Not showing him his favor, and not showing him his grace. When he finally does, I don't think he ever does actually. Yes, he does bring Absalom back to his presence. That is a sign of favor, and that is a sign of grace. So this seems backwards, doesn't it? Almost like the parody continues. Why should seeing God's gracious face, a symbol of love, compassion, and favor, why should that be destructive? Well, the only answer I have for that is that sin causes us to be out of harmony with love and grace and compassion. We tend to become unloving, ungracious, uh, and uh, incompa- uncompassionate people. And being out of harmony with that, love is life-giving and I just would like to suggest that you know we separate the properties of the physical world from the properties of the spiritual world, and we we tend to see them as in separate boxes that don't have any connection. But in God, they are one whole, perfect whole. And I believe that His created power is, is is His love, and that it gives life. But if I'm out of harmony with love, if I have hate, and I I, I'm unforgiving and I'm severe so toward other people. I cannot see his face and live. I can't. I can't have life. I'm on my way to death. I'm, I'm, and, and we all have a piece of that. We all have enough of that that we can't see God's face. And, and part of that is because the second commandment we have all broken. We have all misunderstood the character of God. We have all seen him. As not gracious, as not loving, and thus to see his face when we 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 can only bear to see him uh, in the shadows, as it were, to see his love is to, is self destruct. We can't we can't bear it. And this goes on. If go back to thirty-four. Oh wait a minute. I'm sorry. Back to where we were. Verse 21, the Lord said, Here is a place near me where you shall stand beside the rock. As my glory passes by, I will set you in the gap in the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand and you will see my back. My face won't be visible. What is God's back? A symbol. As his wrath. Turn your back. That the king turns his back on a subject, that subject is going to die. <laughs> So God turns his back from Moses not to, so Moses will die, but so Moses can live in his glorious presence. He lets him only see his wrath side. And that's all Moses can bear. Now go to 34. Toward the end of the chapter. Verse 29. And Bianca, I think it's your turn to repeat. Or did you already? Okay.
3: Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see that the face of Moses, that the skin on his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him.
0: They they could they could hardly bear to see the wrath side of God and this is reflected this is this is uh, borrowed you might say because he's carrying with him the glory he saw and it's dimmed by his carrying it and and they they can't bear that uh it makes them afraid and of course you think about it they have they have. Um They have been worshiping a bull, a bull calf. They prefer a God who is virulent and angry, or at least strong and powerful, uh, to the God who, whose love is gentle and kind. So because of that, when when our preference is that kind of a God, it makes us all the more out of harmony with his love. So what I would like to suggest is that this story is kind of a standard, a, a, a key, another key that unlocks other stories in the Bible. That God has had the problem of... Of hiding his face of hiding his love the fullness of his love from us because we can't endure it and I think I think we really can't bear more than a shadow of God's glory
2: okay is that because seeing God's glory like shines like truth into the sinful being that we are and we, we, we can't tolerate that is it like truth like when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's saying like light shone into darkness, but the world they love their darkness, and they didn't want to see the light
0: yeah, why don't we go to second uh, uh, Corinthians this is a jump into the New Testament here, but the, Paul makes a commentary on this whole story uh, that's very him- helpful second Corinthians three Isn't that why Jesus had to come and veil God's glory in humanity so that we could see God face to face and we could see his love and his compassion and not be consumed by it? The physical manifestation of it in all its glory is overwhelming uh, to us in our sinful state. Um, But let's look at what... um, Let's start with verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 3. And Jonathan... Would you read?
3: And such confidence we have through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to account for anything as from ourselves, but our sufficiencies from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life.
0: Okay. Um, Go ahead and read, Christina.
1: Now if the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone tablets came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, much more does the ministry of justification abound in glory. Indeed, what once had glory has lost its glory because of the greater glory. For if what was set aside came through glory, much more has the permanent come in glory.
0: So what Paul is talking about, you know, is, is the, the ministry that brought death is, is the old covenant, the Sinai covenant that involved the law. And the Israelites couldn't look for long at Moses' face because his face was shining with glory, even though it was a fading glory. Won't the ministry of the Spirit be much more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation has glory, if, if the wrath side of God, which is his turning away, his leaving people to the consequences of their choice, if that was glorious, now, how much more his love, his face, full of compassion? Let me finish this section. So since we have such hope, we act with great confidence. We aren't like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites couldn't watch the end of what was fading away. But their minds were closed. Right up to the present day, that same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. The veil is not removed because it is taken away by Christ. See, Christ revealed the face of the Father. Even today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns back to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Lord's spirit is, there is freedom. You're free when you know that God loves you unconditionally and completely and He's not going to kill you. When you have that freedom, I mean when you have that love, you have freedom. All of us are looking with unveiled faces at the glory of the Lord as if we were looking in a mirror. We are being transformed in that same image from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit communicates, literally communicates the love of God to us and enables us to see with new eyes, unveiled face, the glory of God's face as revealed in Jesus. And and that revelation and that beholding, as we keep looking, we become like it. It's a it's it's the it's actually a law of the moral and spiritual nature that by beholding we become changed, and that works for good or for evil. If if we worship a tyrant, we're going to become tyrannical. Um, but if we worship a God who is love, and we keep focusing on that, we will become like Him. So. One, let's, let's do a little summary. Two points. One is that there is no wrath as a part of God's nature. Wrath is not who He is at all. But wrath is what happens when we cut ourselves off from Him. And He, it, it's, it's, it's expressed in the Bible that He turns away or He, uh, lets us go or gives us up. But we are the ones that move and separate ourselves from him. He does not cast us off. He does not throw us out. He simply lets us go. Uh, so that's that's number one point. Uh, number two point, we can only bear the wrath side of God by our human nature. Um, and it took Jesus to unveil God's face to us so that we could see it as he really is. So, um, we didn't get very far. <laughs> but hopefully this will set the stage. We'll probably go much more quickly next week. Uh, but this, to me, this is a very foundational story. It is very definitive in the Bible because it is God's own self-declaration of who he is. Uh, and he doesn't declare himself to be an angry God. In fact, quite the opposite. He is slow to anger. Yes.
2: So, like, I, I like the method of using, like, Scripture as, as keys to then go to other parts of the Bible, but I feel like maybe the since it was written over such a long swath of time, like, maybe the authors had different views of God's wrath. So can we really, like, use that systematic method of...
0: If, if, we're, if we're just using it as a human book and, and different human beings writing it, then that's absolutely tr- a problem. But if it, if, if it really is inspired by God, we th- in the Spirit, with our faces unveiled, can use that to say, okay, these people, we uh, were writing from a human perspective that was a little muddier, and so the language is not perfect. Mm-hmm. But we can, we can still use, use those passages to, uh, see where God has mediated uh, sometimes that veil gets a little thick.
2: Yeah. Okay, so it's like spiritually systematic yeah. the whole, spiritually, whole way through. yes. Okay, I'm, through, I'm with you. All right. The,
0: through the Spirit. That's why we have to have the Spirit help us to read the Bible. Otherwise, it's just a human book, and, and we get bogged down in, in human pictures of God that trouble us. That was a very good question. So, I hope you don't start talking as soon as we turn this off if you 're going to talk, please talk now <laughs> because i 'd like to hear this con- this conversation on
2: your prayer at the beginning reminded me of something I saw on facebook um who 's that the great amazing Facts guy
0: doug batchelor yeah
2: you posted about like the California drought as a as uh-huh. god 's wrath in response to uh-huh. gay marriage yeah right so, so uh, that that was interesting. <laughs>
0: Oh, about the drought—that yeah. that you are merciful, God—and and, and uh, we ask right, you so to like, show what, His mercy.
2: What does that say about God? If, you, if in response to you know Prop 8 passing, He sends a drought?
0: You know, again, this this raises this important question: Does God send things to punish people? Right.
3: Right. I think so often that we like to attribute the good things or the bad things, for that matter, to God. Like I've heard a story of. Uh, What's the name of the leader of North Korea? Kim. Kim Jong. Kim Kim something. He will be Kim for the purpose of this discussion. (laughs) Anyway, um, so this guy goes in for surgery in North Korea. And, you know, it's provided by the government. And when he wakes up in the operating room, he's surrounded by posters of Kim, uh, dictator Kim. And he wakes up and he's like, Oh, thank you, Kim. You are gracious and merciful and you have given me this surgery. Well, did Joan Kim, or whoever he is, really care at all about this guy? No, probably not. Not at all. But yet, all of the goodness was ascribed to the dictator. Thank you, John. Um, Do we not do the same thing with God sometimes, I wonder?
0: Well, something bad has happened, God must have done it.
3: When something bad has happened, God must have done it. When something good has happened, God must have done done it. it. And
0: I must be a really special person, and I must... Deserve what God has given. Hitler.
3: Lots of examples yeah, of it. But. Yeah.
0: And, and the way I see God working in the world is, it isn't that he sends anything, but we deprive him of his ability to offset the things we do to our planet, to keep things going, uh, because we... He can't, he will not force himself on us and if we do not want him, he will leave us to suffer the consequences that we have engendered on this planet. And it, it doesn't really that he leaves us, we cut ourselves off from him. It, it really is pulling the plug out of the ball and we don't have the electricity anymore.
4: If God is gonna send a drought on me because I said a bad word or because I cheated on a test or something, or did something even worse than that, then I wouldn't be able to trust God, I don't think. I wouldn't be able to um, love Him um, on my own So, will.
0: So you did something to offend your parents, and you come home and find the refrigerator locked. Well... <laughs> and that's uh, To use an earthly example, right. would, you, would you trust your parents?
4: Well, I mean... if if God is going to punish me severely for any of my sins, wouldn't that diminish the power of the cross, of, of of the power of Jesus on the cross to save us, not to punish us for our sins, but to save us from
0: them? Well, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they might have life. We have
3: to be careful, though, with that, I think, because, in a sense, what's wrong with punishment? You know, spare the rod, spoil the child, all that stuff. Why can we not believe that God does punish? I'm not saying that he does, but we have to present the opposite side here. Um, What's wrong with that? Does that make God unfair if he chooses to punish us? It's just like uh, pruning a, a vine or something like that, pruning a tree. The tree won't grow right unless it is... Punished, per se.
0: Is it possible that it has to do with how God punishes us? Maybe a better word would be disciplines us. Um, Go ahead.
3: Okay. It just points back to what you were talking about earlier, about um, God simply allowing us to experience the effects of our own
2: sin. Yeah, I think it has to do with the kind of relationship God wants to have with us, if it's like like friends like I think a lot of the Bible points to, then he wants us to be like in on what he's doing, and that means not being arbitrary about his punishments it means l- letting them play out so that we realize that, oh gosh, God was right, you know it's not about him whacking us, it's about oh man god dude, i'm I'm with you, man
0: you know the yeah it, it, if we have if the problem is that God is going to punish us then the problem is God and we have to get in good with God but if it's sin that's going to hurt us, then the problem is sin and then we want to get rid of sin
4: and that is exactly what I was trying to get at because um sin is the the thing that destroys us and the the bad things that happen are a result of sin they're they're not a result of God's Wrath upon us, like it says in Romans one, um, 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 in Romans two, also. Um, when when we when we sin, the natural consequences are terrible. Um, when we sin, when we judge other people, and all those things, we're like like Paul says, storing for ourselves wrath. For the day of judgment, yeah, it,
0: it actually can be translated in ourselves. We're going to come yeah. to that that text. It's a very important right. text.
4: So I, I don't I don't think that God's wrath is the response He has for our sins. I think um, it's the power it of the cross. It is not
0: something coming out from within God. It is something that we do to God to cut ourselves off from Him. And I think that's what what the statement that God makes in his self-revelation is, is very clear about. His wrath isn't part of that. Slow to anger is, but not wrath. Well, why don't we close with prayer? Or did I? No, I didn't do that yet. Father, we thank you for revealing your face, albeit dimly to Moses, but more clearly in Jesus. I pray that we may take the veil off our faces and see yours in all its glory. In Jesus' name, amen.